Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Scania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 20th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. So far this year, Chris Scania has averaged over 2,000 podcast downloads a day. I'm not bragging, that's just the facts, from the main website alone. While, Yahweh willing, all of our work will always be available on the website freely, we also plan to make at least most of it available for purchase on CDs, and ultimately we hope to write some or organize some books, format some books as well. We've already written the books, the materials on the website freely. The CDs are a matter of organization and convenience, and we hope that they are purchased for the purposes of evangelizing our message to others who have not yet heard it. That's what we think the CDs would be most useful for. Anybody who already knows our work can just go to the website and download as much as they would like. This week we made four additional CDs available, and we now have collections of our podcasts available under 10 different titles, four double CD sets and six singles. Soon we shall also make the first five years of Clifton Emmerheiser's Watchman's Teaching Letters available in like manner, as well as some of our own work from 2011 and 2012 our um, series on the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, Luke, and, and some of the Mein Kampf project work, as well as some other things. <clears throat> I'm going to begin tonight's program with a short parable. You walk a certain route to work every day, and every day you encounter the same poor widow, and you always give her $5 or $10, of which she is certainly in need. The good man praises Yahweh God that he can help the widow, and that God has chosen him through which to do so. The only reward which that man seeks for his charity is a heavenly reward. But the man with bitter feelings in his heart is eventually vexed by his having to help the widow. And one day he chooses purposely <clears throat> to take a different route, so that he no longer encounters her. So after a couple of days, or perhaps weeks, <clears throat> he falls in with robbers and loses his wallet and all of his money. That man should remember why he was traveling down that alternate route. And he should regret having changed his route, repenting because Yahweh has put him on notice. When you stop doing what it is that God wants you to do because you think better of your own agenda, you are bound to run into troubles. God will not be denied what is his. Look at the prophet Jonah. God wanted him to go to Nineveh. Jonah thought he had a better idea, and he ended up being an example. We should all live every day contemplating the route which best serves our God and not ourselves. End of message. With that, we will commence with the epistles of Paul. 2 Corinthians, part 4, Treasure in Earthen Vessels. In 1 Corinthians, chapters 3 and 4, 
Paul had made an analogy of the Old Testament service of death in letters in comparison to the New Testament service of the Spirit, which he called the service of righteousness in honor. Doing so, he explained that the judgments of the Mosaic law were left unemployed in Christ. And for that reason, Christians should seek to keep the spirit of the law written on their hearts. Paul then spoke of the treasure in earth and vessels and the unseen hope of eternal life in the face of physical death which Christians have in Christ. Paul then explained that having the same spirit of the faith, Christians should live to serve Yahweh their God in the knowledge of hope in that eternal life because if our outer man is being destroyed, then our inner is being restored day by day, ostensibly referring to that same treasure in earthen vessels, as he had called it earlier in the epistle, which is the Adamic spirit that exists within each of the children of God. Paul of Tarsus had clearly taught that there is an eternal spirit within the Adamic man, and that through that spirit, there would eventually be a resurrection to life in the physical world, which he had illustrated in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But this possibility was a topic of literature for 2,000 years before the Christian era, in the Greek myths of Orpheus and Eurydice, or Heracles and Alcestis, or in the much older Sumerian legends of Inanna or Gilgamesh, we see exhibited the belief in a continued existence of the spirit after the death of the body. Many other ancient legends of those same cultures reflected the belief of the continuation of the spirit after death, such as in the Iliad, where Odysseus visits the netherworld and converses with the spirits of the departed, or in Virgil's Aeneid, where Aeneas, the title character, converses with his own deceased father. Yet, in the sophistry of the philosophies of later classical Greece, many of the Greeks and Romans had to a great degree come to scoff at the notion of life after death. We see this attitude expressed in Acts chapter 17, where, after Paul spoke at the Areopagus, as Luke had recorded it, it is said, and hearing of a resurrection of the dead, some men mocked him. But others said, we shall hear you concerning this also again. So at least some of the Greeks of Paul's time mocked the possibility of resurrection, even though it had been a recurring topic in their own ancient literature. Some may scoff that this idea of life after death is the wishful thinking of man, and it is inevitable in every culture. But that is certainly not true. It is only true of every Adamic culture. And it has since been transmitted to certain others to whom it certainly does not belong. Every ancient white Adamic culture reflected some belief in a continued existence of the spirit of man after death. Now some may scoff and claim that this belief was pagan. Yet, 
all of these diverse pagan religions had common ground in the basic elements of these legends. In these basic elements, they also agree in large part with Scripture. It's our remote ancestors. Once having had the truth of God and then diverging into paganism, did not maintain at least some core cultural beliefs in common with Scripture, then we may doubt the commonality of our origins with that of the authors of our Scripture. Rather, in the commonality of certain fundamental beliefs, we may see that there is indeed truth in the histories which trace us to a common origin with the authors of our Scripture. So in the end, we shall see that the God of the Bible is true, and every so-called pagan who mocks God actually disgraces himself. Here we shall quote from a paper at Christiania entitled Classical Records and German Origins, Part 3. It is relevant to this portion of Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians because it exhibits the belief in the immortality of the spirit among some of our ancient European pre-Christian ancestors. To quote my own paper, written, I think, in 2007, discussing the religion of the Gede, it seems certainly to have been an Israelite, to have an Israelite origin, I'm sorry. Though Strabo repeats a tale similar to one recorded by Herodotus, both writers gave accounts which claim the Gede derived their religion from Pythagoras, the Greek philosopher. Who, who indeed seems to have studied and derived a good part of his own philosophy from the Hebrew scriptures. Nevertheless, such a tale may have been invented by some other writer earlier than either Herodotus or Strabo. In order to account for similarities in the beliefs of the Gede with those of the famous Pythagoras, Herodotus states first that a certain Zalmoxis is the god of the Gede, but also gives another account which he relates even though he rejects it, that Zalmoxis was merely a slave of Pythagoras whom the, from whom the Thracians acquired their religion. And this is close to the version of the story related by Strabo. The knowledge which this Zalmoxis imparts to the Gede is said by Strabo to have come from Egypt. Strabo is trying to account for the similarity of these basic beliefs. Also mentioned in these accounts are the beliefs of the Gede in the immortality of the soul and their monotheism, along with other ideas which have parallels in the Israelite religion. In a discussion concerning lawgivers, Diodorus Siculus also mentions Zalmoxis, and I quote, among the people known as the Gede who represent themselves to be immortal.
but says nothing else of Zalmoxis or of their religion. Discussing the Galatahi, however, he compares their beliefs in immortality and metempsychosis to the similar philosophy of Pythagoras. Things also related of the Celts by both Strabo in his Geography, Book 4, and Julius Caesar in the Gallic War, Book 6. Speaking of the Druids among the Gauls or Celts, Caesar and, and Galatahi or Gaul and Celt are used interchangeably by Caesar and by Theodore Siculus and by Strabo. Speaking of the Druids among the Gauls or Celts, Caesar had written in that passage of the Gallic War, Book 6, Paragraph 14, that the cardinal doctrine that they seek to teach is that souls do not die, but after death pass from one to another. And this belief, is the, and, and that's what metempsychosis is, and this belief as the fear of death is thereby cast aside, they hold to be the greatest incentive to valor. Theodore Siculus, a contemporary of Caesar's, had also written of the Gauls in this same respect, saying that the belief of Pythagoras prevails among them, that the souls of men are immortal, and that after a prescribed number of years, they commence upon a new life, the soul entering into another body. Pythagoras, however, <clears throat> lived in the 6th century, and a Greek epic poet such as Homer had already expressed beliefs in the continued existence of the spirits of man after death. So the references to Pythagoras seem to reflect seem to relate to the manner and not to the basic substance of his particular profession in life after death. <clears throat> Speaking of the Druids among the Gauls, Strabo had said in his Geography, Book 4, that not only the Druids, but others as well, say that men's souls and also the universe are indestructible, although both fire and water will at some time or other prevail over them. <clears throat> now, this statement by Strabo is certainly evocative of the Apostle Peter's words from chapter 3 of his second epistle, and I'll read from verse 6, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So the Gauls certainly had beliefs similar to the Israelites of our scripture. Now, while Christians should not believe in either reincarnation or in metempsychosis, which is apparently the manner in which Pythagoras 
had evidently believed in life after death, which both Caesar and Diodorus Siculus had also attributed to the Gauls, to the Galatahi. Nevertheless, we see a belief in the immortality of the soul, which was found among both the Gede and the Gauls. The Greeks believed this profession to be the chief reason why the Gede, as well as the Gauls, were fearless in battle. Towards the end of this presentation, we shall see Josephus ascribe a similar belief in metempsychosis to the Pharisees. So we see a few, and this is only a very few, of the many examples in early literature that pagans had various beliefs of a continued existence of the spirit of an individual after the death of the body, although they imagined it in diverse forms. Here, in his two epistles to the Corinthians, we see Paul of Tarsus explaining the scriptural position on the matter, which is the position that Christians should hold as an expectation. Having this expectation, Christians should love and serve both one another and their God without fear, knowing that once they die in the flesh, they have, as Paul called it, a building from Yahweh, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Thus, Christians should also be fearless in battle. For this reason, Paul had said in his first epistle to the Corinthians that if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. 1 Corinthians 15:19. The belief in an underworld abode of the souls of the dead and the possibility of returning from it to the land of the living are a subject of the legends and myths of ancient literature found not only among the Sumerians, Babylonians, Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans, but also in the earliest literature of the Welsh and the Germanic authors of the Eddas. So pagans should abandon their paganism and return to Christ, if indeed they are really pagans and not Jews playing pagan to distract whites. Speaking of the want of fear which all Christians should have towards death, Paul says in the opening of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, we know that if perhaps our earthly house of the tabernacle would be destroyed, we have a building from Yahweh, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We read in the Gospel of John, in chapter 2, where it is recorded that Christ had driven the money changers out of the temple, from verse 19. Jesus answered them and said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building. They were materialists. And wilt thou rear it up in three days? 
But, and John makes a little parenthetical remark here, but he spoke of the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.44, explaining the resurrection of the dead through the Adamic spirit, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual. The resurrection of the dead is the return of all members of the Adamic race to life in the flesh, as Job is credited with having said in Job chapter 19. And although after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. The eternal house not made with hands is a reference to the true temple of God, the spirit of Yahweh bestowed upon each member of the Adamic race as a component of its natural genetic fabric. However, the flesh of the resurrection is not necessarily the same as the flesh of this current world. As we also see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul had written that, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. Verse 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we bemoan in this, yearning to be clothed with our dwelling which is from of heaven. If indeed, even being stripped, we shall not be found naked. Now, I know the King James reads that last clause a little differently. The third century papyrus, P46, and the practically all of the ancient great uncles, the Codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Ephraim Siri, as well as the majority text, all have verse 3 to read, if indeed even being clothed, we shall not be found naked. That reading seems nonsensical in the context of the statements in verses 2 and 4 and appears to be an error, and it's an error in the difference of a single letter. N, do not, I'm sorry, and dusamidoi means clothed in rather than ek dusamidoi meaning strict. Paul is surely making an allegorical allusion to the text of Genesis chapter 3 verses 6 and 7. And therefore, the text of the Christogenian New Testament agrees with the Codex Claromontanus in this instance, which has ek dusaminoi, or stripped, and the 27th and 28th editions of the critical Nestle Aland text both agree with that assessment that Endu Saminoi in most of the manuscripts is probably an scribal error for Ekdu Saminoi.
In Genesis chapter 3, we read, She took the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Verse 4, And indeed, we who are being burdened in the tabernacle, the body, the human Adamic body, is allegorically the tabernacle of the Adamic spirit within it. If there's no eternal Adamic spirit within the human Adamic body, then to refer to it as a tabernacle is simply extraneous. It, it it's, doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And we, indeed, who are being burdened in the tabernacle, bemoan, since we wish not to be stripped, but to be clothed, in order that the mortal would be consumed by life. From the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 9. For the thoughts of mortal men are miserable, and our devices are but uncertain. For the corruptible body presses down the soul, and the earthy tabernacle weighs down the mind that muses upon many things. Now, verse 15 there, in Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 9, has two clauses, and those two clauses are a Hebrew parallelism. The corruptible body is the earthly tabernacle, and the mind is an element of the soul. As he informs his readers here, Paul likewise had said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that this decay wants to be clothed in incorruptibility and this mortal to be clothed in immortality. And when this decay shall have put on incorruptibility, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then the word that has been written shall come to pass. Death has been swallowed in victory. While we do not know anything of the intervening letter which Paul must have received from the Corinthians in response to his first epistle to them, his earlier epistle to them. It seems that the things which he writes here were meant to clarify questions that they must have asked about statements concerning these very things in his earlier epistle. So we have what we're in, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, we're seeing half of a dialogue. We're seeing one side of the dialogue. Paul's answers to the Corinthians, we're not getting what the Corinthians had written to Paul, and wow, would it be a blessing to have that? I don't think we ever will. The epistle to the Romans was written only a few short months following this second epistle to the Corinthians. In chapter 8 of Romans, Paul had taught much the same things which he teaches here concerning fear and hope in Christ, where he says from verse 15, therefore you have not taken on a spirit of bondage anew to fear, 
But you have taken on a spirit of the position of sons in which we cry, Father, Father. That same spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of Yahweh. And if children, then heirs. Heirs indeed of Yahweh and joint heirs of Christ. If indeed we, I'm sorry, if indeed we suffer together, that also we will be honored together. Therefore, I consider that the happenstances of the present time are not of value, looking to the future honor to be revealed to us. Indeed, in earnest anticipation, the creation awaits the revelation of the sons of God. To transientness, the creation was subjected not willingly, but on account of he, a reference to Yahweh, who subjected it in expectation that also the creation itself shall be liberated from the bondage of decay into the freedom of the honor of the children of Yahweh. For we know that the whole creation laments together and travails together until then, and not alone, but also they having the first fruit of the Spirit, and we ourselves with them lament awaiting the placement of sons, the redemption of our body. Later in that same chapter of Romans, Paul clarifies what he meant by the words whole creation, limiting the scope of the term to mean the entire Adamic creation, all of Adamic man. <clears throat> Verse 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now he who has been cultivating us for this same thing is Yahweh, who has been giving to us the deposits of the Spirit. The verb rendered as cultivating here. These little, these little nuances in Paul's language demonstrate the truth of the Christian identity message over and over. And they're important to understand. Paul's, these nuances, these little things that Paul says that are seemingly harmless when we examine them in the light of Scripture, show us what Paul's worldview is. Paul's worldview is a purely Christian identity worldview. The verb rendered as cultivating here, tattered gazomahi. Strong's number 2716, a verb which means primarily to effect by labor, to achieve or to accomplish something through work. Well, the King James Version has wrought, W-R-O-U-G-H-T. The word may have been rendered as fashioning, he who has been fashioning us for the same thing. The language which Paul uses relates directly to the children of Israel of the Old Testament, since this is exactly what Yahweh said he would do to the children of Israel in the Old Testament. This language cannot possibly be applied to anyone other than the children of Israel from the Old Testament, as Paul's statement is in accordance with the stated intentions of Yahweh in the Old Testament concerning the children of Israel. 
any other interpretation defrauds Paul and also is an attempt to defraud God himself. For instance, from Jeremiah chapter 18, written after Israel was taken into captivity, we read thus, there's only the remnant of Judah in Jerusalem at this time, along with some of the other tribes. The word which came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, saying, <clears throat> Arise and go down to the potter's house, for there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. Is that word. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, O oh, house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith Yahweh. Behold, as the clay is in a potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The children of Israel marred in the hands of the potter, in the old covenant service of death in letters, would be fashioned anew by the potter in the new covenant service of the Spirit of Christ. In Ezekiel chapter 36, which was also written after Israel was taken into captivity, we read, But ye, O mountains of Israel, ye shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people of Israel, for they are at hand to come. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn unto you, and you shall be killed and sown, and I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, even all of it, and the city shall be inhabited, and the waste places shall be built. And the, the word for verse 9, for tilled in the Septuagint, is that same word which Paul uses here, tatter. Similar language in reference to Yahweh's plan for Israel is expressed in Isaiah. For instance, in chapter 5, as the prophet is prophesying against Judah, and it says, For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looks for judgment, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. Later, in Isaiah chapter 43, the prophet addresses the children of Israel in their dispersion, whom Yahweh would continue to cultivate in spite of the other nations, not along with the other nations, in spite of them, where it says, But now, thus saith Yahweh, that created thee, O Jacob, and he did form thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee, by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not 
overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Israel would be saved in spite of the other nations. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. Ethiopia and Sheba for thee. These were Adamic Genesis 10 nations, which Yahweh gave up ostensibly to his enemies. Since thou, meaning Israel, since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yeah, I have made him. Yahweh works with works upon, as Paul says here, the children of Israel to form them into the pot that he wants them to be. The children of Israel are again portrayed in the manner of clay in the hands of the potter in Isaiah chapter 64 from verse 8. But now, O Yahweh, this is a dialogue, and the children of Israel collectively are doing the talking. But now, O Yahweh, thou art our father. We are the clay, and thou our potter. And we are all the work of thy hand. Be not wroth, very sore, O Yahweh. Neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee. We are all thy people. Israel, we are all thy people. Where, in verse 5, the King James Version has wrought. The verb which Paul used here is a participle of the aorist tense, and therefore indicates that the action had begun at some point in the past, but is not necessarily finished. That's a tense we don't have in English. We have past, present, perfect, imperfect, future. We don't have a tense in our English language that describes an action that started in the past and is continued indefinitely. We have to make a phrase in order to express that. But that's what the aorist tense can indicate in Greek. That usage, therefore, fits the biblical context and the relationship between Yahweh and Israel very well. Here we chose to render that verb, katergazomahi, as cultivating, as Israel is the vineyard of Yahweh God, he who has been cultivating us. We may have rendered the word as fashioning, as Israel is also the clay in the hands of God the potter. In any event, Paul's language relates to the same prophecies of God concerning Israel. 
and we have seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul explicitly reveals that these Corinthians to whom he speaks are indeed of the dispersions of Israel. As the new covenant was a matter of prophecy for the children of Israel, as Yahweh the potter was fashioning Israel the clay after his own design, the deposit of the Spirit of God was also a matter of prophecy for the same children of Israel. From Isaiah chapter 44, Yet now hear, O Jacob my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen, thus saith Yahweh that made thee, and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jesurun, an epithet which means upright one, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon my offspring. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the watercourses. One shall say, I am Yahweh's. And another shall call himself by the name of Jacob. And another shall subscribe with his hand under Yahweh. And surname himself by the name of Israel. Thus saith Yahweh, the king of Israel, and his redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, and there is no God beside me. And who, as I, shall call and shall declare it, and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people, and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show unto them. In other words, show them unto his ancient people. The language which Paul uses when compared to the word of Yahweh God in his prophets makes it very clear why Paul would call his ministry a ministry of reconciliation later in this same chapter. We won't get that far tonight. Therefore, verse 6, always having courage, and knowing that residing in the body, we sojourn away from the prince. Indeed, we walk by faith, not by that which is seen. Now have we courage, and we are still more pleased to travel out of the body and to reside with the prince, on which account we also strive eagerly, either residing at home or sojourning, to be pleasing to him. Travel out of the body, we go out the front door and get on a bus, right? I'm just kidding. Here Paul clarifies exactly what he intended to relate with the references which he had made earlier in this chapter, where he mentioned things such as a building from Yahweh, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, and the concept of being clothed with our dwelling which is from all heaven, as well as to the remark in chapter 4 that our inner man is being restored day by day. 
as the outer man faces the trials of this life. These statements were all made in the context of life as opposed to death. For instance, if our outer man is being destroyed, as he says in verse 16 of chapter 4, or if perhaps our earthly house of the tabernacle would be destroyed, as he says, as he says here in the opening verse of chapter 5, meaning that if we suffer death, if we suffer the death of our fleshly body, we nevertheless live in the spiritual body which we, as he explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, can expect to possess as children of God the treasure in earthen vessels, which Paul had also called it earlier in chapter 4 of this epistle. For that, we should have courage to face the trials of life, even if they result in the death of the flesh, which we as Christians may even expect. When Christians walk in fear of death and cling to the cares of the material world, the enemies of God prevail over them. Paul asserts the existence of this spiritual body in 1 Corinthians 15.44, where he speaks of the nature of the Adamic man of the resurrection, and he says, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual. The Adamic man has an eternal spirit bestowed upon him by Yahweh his God as an integral part of his creation. While the Adamic man is in the flesh of this world, Paul describes that spirit as sojourning away from God. We therefore walk by faith, knowing that if we die in the flesh, we are alive in the spirit, and we are then reunited with our God, knowing that this hope is real. We should seek to please our God for as long as we walk in the flesh. Of course, Paul himself says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that Yahweh God alone has immortality, and that, of course, is true. However, as it says in chapter 2 of the Wisdom of Solomon, the Adamic man was created by God to be an image of that same eternity. Therefore, while God alone is immortal, of himself. The immortality of the spirit of Adamic man is by the grace of God's good will. God created the Adamic man to be immortal like him. We cannot expect to look into the Old Testament alone and understand everything which Paul relates here. That's not possible. There is a bigger picture which transcends the Old Testament portrayal of life and death, which is indeed often fatalistic. And therefore, the paradigm of the life in the spirit after the death of the 
body which is described by Paul of Tarsus is different from that which may be found in any particular portion of the scriptures of the Old Testament. There is a reason for this, which Paul explains in diverse other ways and places in his epistles. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 10, he compares life in the spirit to the ancient temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem in an analogy where he says at verse 19, Therefore, brethren, having liberty into the entrance of the holy places in the blood of Yahshua. How could that make sense if the temple is destroyed, right? Having liberty into the entrance of the holy places in the blood of Yahshua by a new and living way through the veil, which he, meaning Christ, has consecrated for us, that is, of his flesh. Paul also spoke in this manner in chapter 6 of that same epistle where he said, Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Likewise, speaking in different terms to dispersed of ancient Israel in the assembly of Christ in Ephesus, Paul had written in chapter 2 of his epistle to the Ephesians, from verse 14, For he is our peace, who has made both one, and having broke down, the middle wall of the enclosure, the hostility in his flesh, having annulled the law of commandments in ordinances, in order that he would establish the two with himself into one new man, making peace, and again reconcile both in one body to Yahweh through the cross, having slain that hostility by it, and having come, he announced the good message, peace to you who are far away and peace to those near. Because of him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So therefore, you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but fellow citizens of the saints and of the household of Yahweh, being built upon the foundation of the ambassadors and the prophets, Yahshua Christ himself being the cornerstone. Paul refers to Christ again in chapter 3 of the epistle, where he said that it is him with whom we have free spokenness and access in confidence through his faith. That free spokenness and access which he describes is that which the children of Israel in Christ shall have before Yahweh their God. The foundation upon the prophets can only be realized in the words of the prophets concerning the children of Israel and their dispersions, whom the apostles were reconciling to God, those far away as well as those who were near. Before the cross of Christ, the children of Adam, and later again the children of Israel, were alienated from God. The alienation of the children of Adam in Adam himself 
is described in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Unto Adam also, and to his wife, did Yahweh God make coats of skins and clothed them, being stripped. They were found to be naked. And for good reason, Paul uses this very thing as an analogy earlier in this chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. The tree of life is Yahweh God, and later manifested to Israel in Yahshua Christ, who is the true vine. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east end of the Garden of Eden cherubims, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. The cherubim were not to keep the man from accessing the tree of life, but are rather symbolic of the fact that Yahweh would make certain that the man could be able to access it once again, since the path to it was being preserved by the cherubim. Later, the cherubim were placed atop the Ark of the Covenant, where it is evident that the path to the tree of life is the keeping of the law inside the ark, as well as the mercy of God symbolized in the mercy seat placed between the cherubim atop of the ark. As Paul explained in his epistle to the Galatians, that the law is the schoolmaster of those same children of Israel to bring them to Christ. It is Christ who shall ultimately sit upon the mercy seat, which symbolizes his judgment. In Genesis 3, the cherubim were symbolically placed on the east end of the Garden of Eden because that is where the sun rises. We read, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And Christ is the light of the world. While the children of Israel kept the law, they had access to Yahweh their God through the parameters that he had laid down, such as the inner area of the temple set behind a veil, and the Urim and Thummim of the priests. But as Paul explained in Colossians, of the appointed feasts and Sabbaths, those things were also a shadow of things to come. In Christ, the Adamic race and especially the children of Israel in the flesh, 
are reconciled to Yahweh their God. Paul informs us in Hebrews and in Ephesians that he passed through the veil for us so that we may also pass through the veil and have communion with God. Where I go, you will come later. He is the tree of life offered to the Adamic man for the purpose of their restoration and eternal life in Genesis 3.22. In the Old Testament, we see admonishments in the law for the children of Israel to keep away from those who have familiar spirits, from wizards and necromancers, from those who can communicate with the dead. The spirits of departed men are portrayed as inhabiting Sheol, or to the Greeks, Hades, which was the underworld abode of the dead. The deceased, and namely those who died before the flood, are described by Peter in his first epistle as souls in prison, from 1 Peter chapter 3, because Christ also suffered once for all sins, the just on the behalf of the unjust, in order that he may lead you to God, indeed dying in the flesh, but being made to live by the Spirit, at which also going he proclaimed to those spirits in prison who at one time had been disobedient when the forbearance of Yahweh awaited in the days of Noah preparing the vessel in which just a few, that is, eight souls, had been preserved through the water. Then Peter explains what he had meant further on in 1 Peter chapter 4 where he says that indeed for this also, to the dead, the gospel has been announced, that they may be judged like men in the flesh, but live like God in the spirit, referring to those who died before Christ. We see similar language in Isaiah chapter 24, where it says of the world of ancient Israel, and it shall come to pass in that day, say it, that Yahweh shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high, and the kings of the earth upon the earth, and they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit, and shall be shut up in the prison in death. After many days shall they be visited. Then the moon shall be confounded, and the sun ashamed, when Yahweh of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. Evidently, the use of the term prison in these passages is an analogy for alienation from God in the spirit, to whom the Adamic race now once again has access by the reconciliation which is in Christ. Perhaps the messianic prophecy of Isaiah chapter 42 is multidimensional in its scope, where it says in part that the purpose of the Christ is to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and then that sit in darkness out of the prison house. In Christ, the eternal spirits of each and every Adamic man are no longer in prison, 
whatever one wants to imagine that prison to be. It seems to me, as a digression, that those spirits were indeed kept in an earthly realm until Christ, which was represented to us as Sheol or Hades. Even if that is the case, it is the case no more. Now with Christ, we have access to God. As Paul explains, the traveling out of the body, we reside with Christ. And he says in verse 10, For we all must appear in front of the judgment seat of the Christ, in order that each should be provided for the things after the body, from that which he has practiced, whether good or bad. But as Paul inferred in 1 Timothy chapter 5, where he is ostensibly comparing the repentant, those who repent of sin in this life, with those who are not, and he says it, verse 24, some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Likewise, also, the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. In respect of Christ and the dead, Paul is teaching the same thing which Christ had taught as it is recorded in the Gospel. Here we will read from John chapter 5, verse 21. For just as the Father raises and makes the dead to live, thusly also the Son makes live whom he wishes. For neither does the Father judge anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son in order that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He not honoring the Son would not honor the Father who has sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, that he hearing my word and believing in he who has sent me has eternal life and does not come to judgment, but is passed from death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you that the hour comes and is now when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of Yahweh, and those hearing shall live. The dead can hear before they are resurrected, just as Peter described in his first epistle. For just as the Father has life in himself, thusly also he has given the Son to have life in himself, and he has given authority to him to make judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be astonished at this, because the hour comes in which all those in the tomb shall hear his voice, and they shall go forth, those having done good things to a resurrection of life, but those having practiced wicked things to a resurrection of judgment. And I would cross-reference that to Daniel 12:2. I am not able to do anything by myself. Just as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of he who has sent me. If I should give testimony concerning myself, my testimony is not true. It is another who is testifying concerning me, and I know that the testimony is true which he testifies concerning me. You sent to John, and he testified to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I speak these things in order that you may be preserved. 
Paul is teaching in different words and on different terms the same thing which Yahshua Christ had taught in the Gospels. And in verse 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, Then knowing the fear of the prince, or the awe of the prince in the Christogenia New Testament, we persuade men. <clears throat> P46 says we should persuade men. The awe or fear of the prince is the reverence that we should have for Yahshua Christ, who alone holds in his hands the future of our race and also that of each one of us as individuals. We, as individuals, however, must know that we have no choice in the matter. You can screw up as much as you want. You may be raised to the resurrection of judgment. You may spend a future in, as Daniel 12 explains, an eternal state of disgrace, but it will be eternal. For that, we should know that we better do well. No matter what we do, we cannot control our future or our destiny for ourselves. This is evident in the words of Christ in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. If you are one of his sheep, if you are one of the children of Israel, you don't have a choice in your own eternal life. You have it according to the word of God. You can't screw up enough to lose it. But not having any good works, you may not like it. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. All Israel shall be saved, as the Scripture says, although for many that salvation may come in spite of themselves. And certainly it will. Now to Yahweh we have been made known. But I also hope to have been made known in your consciences. Paul's conclusion to verse 11. Paul had told the Corinthians in chapter 9 of his first epistle to them that if to others I am not an apostle, an apostle, yet at any rate to you I am. Indeed, the assurance of my message is you and the prince. The assembly of Corinth had suffered much internal strife as we have already seen earlier in this epistle. And here in this epistle at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul asks, do we begin anew to introduce ourselves? Or do we, as some, need letters of the introduction to you or from you? Therefore, Paul's statement here is only expressed as a hope that such things are not truly necessary as we shall see that. This is indeed the context when we present verse 12 of this chapter. Next week, we won't get more than 11 verses in today. However, and for the time being, in relation to what we have 
presented here concerning the things of the spirit of the Adamic man and its reconciliation to Yahshua, to Yahweh through Yahshua Christ, we thought we should present Flavius Josephus' explanations of the beliefs concerning these things, which were prevalent among the Judeans of Paul's own time, so that we understand the minds of the people of the first century in Judea in relation to these things. And we understand what Paul was also fighting against. From Josephus' Wars of the Judeans, Book 2, and Antiquities of the Judeans, Book 18. Here in these writings, Josephus describes the basic beliefs of the three sects among the Judeans, the three prominent sects anyway, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes. And we do this so that we may see what the apostles themselves were taught in the assemblies prior to Christ, which also reflects the general perceptions of the people at that time. We shall begin with the Sadducees from Josephus' Wars of the Judeans, Book 2, lines 164 through 167. But the Sadducees are those who compose the second order and take away fate entirely. They believed in nothing but free will and suppose that God is not concerned in our doing or not doing what is evil. And they say that to act what is good or what is evil is at men's own choice and that the one or the other belongs to everyone to act that they may act as they please. They also take away the belief of the immortal duration of the soul and the punishments and rewards in Hades. Moreover, the Pharisees are friendly to one another and are for the exercise of concord and regard for the public. But the behavior of the Sadducees, one toward another, is in some degree wild. And their conduct with those who are of their own party is as barbarous as if they were strangers to them. Sounds like the typical New York Greenwich Village denizen. Oh, they're the, they're the predecessors, they're the successors of the Pharisees, I'm sorry. The, the liberal progressives and the LGBT crowd. As it is described also in the book of Acts in chapter 21, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Resurrection, angel, and spirit are in two categories, according to Luke, because angel and spirit are in the same category, right? The high priest at the time of Christ, and throughout most of the period from 4 AD to 70 AD, were indeed Sadducees. And one place we could see that is Acts 5.17. 
Ostensibly, the Sadducees denied the existence of any spirit outside of God. They may as well have denied God. In fact, they did. They put him on a cross, right? And their religion, for that reason, was purely materialistic. Josephus writes it in further in Antiquities, Book 18, from line 16, 16 and 17, and he says, But the doctrine of the Sadducees is this, that souls die with the bodies, nor do they regard the observation of anything besides what the law enjoins them. But they think it an instance of virtue to dispute with those teachers of philosophy whom they frequent. But this doctrine is received but by a few, yet by those still of the greatest dignity. But they are able to do almost nothing by themselves. For when they become magistrates, as they are unwillingly and by force sometimes obliged to be, they addict themselves to the notions of the Pharisees, because the multitude would not otherwise bear them. Now for Josephus' description of the beliefs of the sect of the Pharisees regarding these things, first we shall read from Antiquities, Book 18, lines 12 through 15. Now for the Pharisees, they live lowly and despise delicacies in diet, and they follow the conduct of reason, and what that prescribes to them as good for them, they do. And they think they ought earnestly to strive to observe reason's dictates for practice. They also pay a respect to such as are in years, nor are they so bold as to oppose them in anything which they have introduced. And when they determine that all things are done by fate, they do not take away the freedom from men of acting as they think fit, since their notion is that it is pleased God to make a temperament whereby what he wills is done, but so that the will of man can act virtuously or viciously. They also believe that souls have an immortal rigor in them, and that under the earth there will be rewards or punishments according as they have lived virtuously or viciously in this life and the later are to be detained in an everlasting prison, but that the former shall have power to revive and live again, on account of which doctrines they are able greatly to persuade the body of the people, and whatever they do about divine worship, prayers, and sacrifices, they perform them according to their direction, insomuch that the cities give great attestations to them on account of their entire virtuous conduct, both in the actions of their lives and their discourses also. And then from Josephus's Wars of the Judeans, book 2, from line, lines 162 and 3, the Pharisees are those who were esteemed most skillful in the exact explanation of their laws and introduced the first sect, the first sect in this list of Josephus's descriptions of the sects. These ascribe to fate or providence and to God and yet allow, these ascribe all to fate, I'm sorry, and to God, and yet allow that to act what is right or the contrary is principally in the power of men, although fate does cooperate 
in every action. They say that all souls are incorruptible, but that the souls of good men only are moved into other bodies, but that the souls of bad men are subject to eternal punishment, ostensibly in Hades, as Josephus had indicated in Antiquities 18. Josephus had described a fourth sect among the Judeans, which we shall not discuss at length, except to say that he said that these men agree in all other things with the Pharisaic notions, but they have an inviolable attachment to liberty and say that God is to be their only ruler and Lord. They also do not value dying any kinds of death, nor indeed do they heed the deaths of their relatives and friends, nor can any such fear make them call any man Lord. That fourth sect were very uh, resistant of Roman rule. The Pharisees believed in the immortality of the spirit, but they also held the notion of eternal punishments in Hades for those who have done wrong, something which is later seen in the traditional Roman Catholic and other denominational churches. So we see that the Roman Catholics had indeed adopted a lot of the leaven of the Pharisees for their doctrines. However, the Pharisees also seem to have believed in some degree in that same phenomenon of metempsychosis, which we have seen from the classical histories that the Gauls were also said to have believed, where they imagined that the souls of good men only are moved into other bodies. Now for the beliefs of the Essenes in these aspects of their religion, first from Josephus's Antiquities, Book 18, Line 18. The doctrine of the Essenes is this, that all things are best ascribed to God. They teach the immortality of souls and esteem that the rewards of righteousness are to be earnestly striven for. As a digression, since this is another matter entirely, concerning what we call free will, we have now run the entire circuit. The Essenes denied it entirely. The Pharisees esteemed it partially, and the Sadducees believed it to be absolute. So we see that the Essenes believed the hand of God in the actions of men governed every action. The Pharisees were kind of half and half, and the Sadducees didn't think God had any hand at all in, in his creation, that men chose everything they did. So that, that's, um, I, I would think all three sects were confused, but, but it's just interesting that three sects believed three different things concerning free will. Now for um, Josephus's Wars of the Judeans, book two, lines 154 through 158 concerning the Essenes. For their doctrine is this, that bodies are corruptible, and that the matter they are made of is not permanent but that the souls are immortal and continue forever, and that they come out of the most subtle air, 
and are united to their bodies as in prisons. So to the Essenes, the body is the prison, into which they are drawn by a certain natural enticement, but that when they are set free from the bonds of the flesh, they then, as released from a long bondage, rejoice and mount upward. The Essenes sound like ancient hippies to me. I'm sorry. And this is like the opinion of the Greeks, that good souls have their habitations beyond the ocean, in a region that is neither oppressed with storms of rain or snow, or with intense heat, but that this place is such as is refreshed by the gentle breezes of a west wind that is perpetually blowing from the ocean, while they allot to bad souls a dark and tempestuous den full of never-ceasing punishments. And indeed, the Greeks seem to me, to Josephus, to have followed the same notion when they allot the islands of the blessed to their brave men, whom they call heroes and demigods, and to the souls that are wicked, the region of the ungodly, in Hades, where their fables relate that certain persons, such as Sisyphus and Tenelus, and Ixion and Tidius are punished, which is built on his first supposition that souls are immortal. And from this are those exhortations to virtue and exhortations from wickedness collected, whereby good men are bettered in the conduct of their life by the hope that they have of reward after their death, and whereby the vehement inclinations of bad men to vice are restrained. By the fear and exportation they are in, that although they should lie concealed in this life, they should suffer immortal punishment after their death. These are the divine doctrines of the Essenes about the soul, which lay an unavoidable bait for such as have once had a taste of their philosophy. It, it must be noted that Josephus spent, I believe, three years, he describes, in his autobiographical book. He spent three years as an Essene before choosing instead to be a Pharisee. So it should be evident that while the Pharisees and the Essenes were somewhat closer to the truth of Scripture than the purely material Sadducees, and we see that the Roman Catholic Church adopted many of the beliefs of the Pharisees, which the Essenes in large part shared. The faith of Paul of Tarsus concerning the nature of the spirit of a Damic man was quite different from all of these in many respects. However, in the end, both the Old Testament scriptures and the gospel of Christ will fully vindicate Paul. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. Tomorrow night, I will be presenting my essay, Classical Records and German Origins, Part 1. Next Friday, we'll pick up here where we left off in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Watch for Christiania Europe. I pray if all goes well with Sven Longshanks. He's been on the continent for two weeks now, I believe. Watch for Christiania Europe to resume March 29th. Good night.